0: In this text that Bob just read to us, it's uh, considered, the, the theologians that do such things call this the call of Jeremiah, the prophet. This is his call to become what he was destined to become. And it's similar in some ways to the call of Isaiah to be a prophet that I shared a month or so ago. Uh, if you remember, in the call to Isaiah, Isaiah chapter six, that was a wild call. I mean, that that was like the Wizard of Oz kind of stuff. There was shaking and quaking and smoke, and it was scary. And Isaiah cried out, "Woe is me! I'm undone." And this is a much gentler approach. And and so uh, the the way I, I I look at this, maybe I'm right, maybe I'm wrong. Who knows? But the, we know historically that Isaiah uh, grew up in an aristocratic family and was part of the the, the, the better, the well-to-do folks of his time. And so uh, I, I think that uh, to shake Isaiah out of the slumber of being wealthy and comfortable and life is good, to become a voice for the marginalized and the poor, God used a different approach with Isaiah to really shake him out of the slumber that wealth and comfort can provide. And Jeremiah, this is a very different kind of a call. As the story unfolds, as Bob read to us, Jeremiah seems to be a timid, scary, I'm not a good speaker, leave me alone. And so God comes to Jeremiah much like a deer, you know, very gently and and quietly. And, And I whether that's right or wrong, I don't know. But I like the idea that God comes to each of us as we are. It's, it's not, the Bible doesn't present a one-size-fits-all kind of a God. That God is this one thing. But that God communicates to each of us uniquely as we are created. And it says in the text, before I, uh, or before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. It's a God that knows us by name and and can communicate uniquely to each of us. I I like that idea. And and the, the, the focus of what I'd like to share this morning from this text really revolves around our concept or our perspective of this divine being that we name God. Now, God is one of those words that we throw around and we think everybody understands what we mean. And I think all of us have different ideas. And that makes communication about God so difficult. I I remember the words, uh, Pastor Pam, when she was here years ago, used to quote uh, the Muslim cleric Basri How I forget her name now. It was a famous, a a woman, a Muslim cleric, a Sufi, who used to say that... um, Nobody knows really anything about God, and the people that think they do are just troublemakers. <laughs> Rabia El Basri, that was the Muslim cleric, and so <clears throat> I realized that, uh, that uh, anything we say about God is inadequate, but we do need to say some things so that we can try to communicate, and... Uh, Where this comes into play for me, whatever it is you think about God and I think about God, really has huge impact on how we live our lives. I mean, there is an Irish, a contemporary Irish philosopher I like, a guy named Peter Rollins, who now lives in L.A. He's from Ireland. But uh, he talks about we struggle in our time and place with three basic things. We struggle with who we are and who we want to be. We struggle with what we have and what we want. And most importantly, we struggle with having to make decisions and yet not knowing what to do. But we have to do something. And and where this comes into play, uh, every day we have to make decisions without knowing For sure, we have to wrestle with the uncertainty of life. For example, to take a a simple example, uh, ordering a cup of coffee at a Starbucks, if you think about it, can be an existential nightmare. (laughs) How do I know what cup of coffee is going to be the best one for me? Do I order a blonde roast? Do I order Pike's Peak? Do I order an Americano? Which cup of coffee is really going to be the best? And then when it comes to the creamers, oh my god. There's whole milk, half and half, skim milk, 1%, 2%, soy milk, almond milk, rice milk. How do I know which one is right or good? And then the non-caloric sweeteners. There's a pink one, a yellow one, a green one, and a blue one. And how many? And how do I know which one is going to be the best cup of coffee? We don't know. <laughs> and yet I have to make a decision. <laughs> now that's a, a simple one. But, but what about the bigger decisions in life? Who should I partner with? Should I go to school, college? What should my major be? Should, what kind of car? Should I, buy? should I buy a house or should I just rent? And then for folks that I've worked with for years as a hospice chaplain, do I do the chemo or the radiation? Should I do this radical surgery? What about alternative therapy? Should I get a second opinion? How do we know? And yet we have to make a decision. Not choosing is not an option. And yet we don't know. And so the uncertainty of all this can be maddening. And so over the years, particularly in the last couple of hundred, three, four hundred years since the Enlightenment, people make a choice of how do I navigate these uncertainties of life. So some people choose the God of reason and logic, and what does the science say? What does the data, what does the literature say of the kind of choice I need to make? And so some people are more bent that way, and then others of a religious nature are more bent, well, what does God say? And we look for wisdom to navigate these uncertainties of life. And I grew up in a church system whose motto was, God said it, I believe it, that settles it for such issues. I've ended up in a church whose motto is, Rachel Maddow said it, I believe it, that settles (laughs) it, which I think is just as crazy. But we look for wisdom to navigate these uncertainties of life. And so people have a God concept. Now, whether you even believe there's a God or not, that's a God concept. Whether you think there's nothing. And so then you're left on your own. You've got to make a choice. But so what I'm suggesting is these ideas that we have of this sacred other deeply influence and impact our lives. How we behave towards each other. Our God concept, whether we have one or not, influences the way we drive our car on the streets, whether we'll stop at a stop sign or not, or we just sort of roll through. It affects how we do our job, if we're still working, or how we go to school. Will I cheat on a test? Will I not cheat on a test? It affects how I treat my partner, how I treat my children. It, it, it touches everything. It's, it's, and, and it often runs in the back invisibly, like software on a computer. I told the folks, in the online service, you know, they were watching on a program called Zoom, the service. But Zoom is a program that has... there's an invisible operating system behind the Zoom that makes it work, whether if you're on a PC, it's running Windows, if you're on a Mac, it's running an iOS but there's an invisible software in the background that makes everything work, and what I'm suggesting to us this morning is our concept of God is one of these invisible things, softwares in the back of our head that makes everything work and fit together. Now, there's a number of other things that do that as well as our God concept, and I don't have time to get into those today, but If you have interest, those would be our nuclear family experience, what it was like growing up as a child in a family. Our culture is one of those things. And our life experiences, what happens actually to us. The good things as well as the traumatic things. All of these things are an operating system that run around in the back of our brain with how we perceive reality. And as I shared with the kids, the way we look at that picture in the bulletin, do we see an old lady or a young lady? The picture doesn't change. It's black ink on a white page. What changes is how we see, what we perceive that to be. And I'm suggesting that what we think about the divine, the sacred other God that we call, is one of those things that enables us to see the world in life as we live through it and walk through it. And it's an, important, it's an important thing. And I think it's worthy of looking at. It's, it's, it's helping shape how we see reality, how we live. And we should look, well, what is this thing? And Is it accurate? Is it good? Is it helpful? Is it not? Psychologists in recent years have identified at least 11 different types of God concepts ideas that people have about the divine. They've, they've got 11 categories. And I don't remember all of 11 of them right at this moment. <clears throat> oh, I'm going to be 70, you know. But <laughs> the four I remember that are significant, some people view God as a judge. And if I don't behave correctly, God's going to smash me like a bug on the windshield. So that's some people's idea of God. Other people have a idea of God. Well, God is just loving. God loves everybody. In the world, we should just all get along, and so the, there's some people that have that as a concept of God. There's some people that view God as uh, simply an observer. The classic image is of the clockmaker who created this clock and now just sits back and watches as time unfolds, and isn't intimately involved in everything, but just as more of a spectator on the sidelines. That's how some people view God. Or that there is no God, and so we just need to work out and do the best we can. And then the other big one is that God is all-powerful, and that at some point, we're all going to get knocked upside the head and do it right. And so these are different ideas that people have of God. And these are not respective of any particular Religion or church, I'm sure there are people sitting here that view God as a judge. And there's some that view God as very loving. And there's some view that there isn't even a God. And we're just trying to do the best we can. Or that God is just watching. And and to be honest with you, on any day I could have any one or all four or more of those ideas of God. Depending on how people are treating me and whether I'm getting my way or not. So, it's just, these God concepts are fluid, they're not fixed, but what I'm suggesting is they have a huge impact on how we engage life, as they did for Isaiah and Jeremiah. It changed Jeremiah's life. He was an insecure young man when God revealed God's self to Jeremiah. And Jeremiah became a prophet, speaking truth to power, being a voice for the poor, the marginalized. And, and this is just a side note. I'm going to toss this in for free. This isn't part of the sermon. So, T.G., you don't have to pay me for this one. This is, but it's good. One of the things I've noticed about all the prophets in the Bible, none of them wanted to be prophets. None of them wanted to speak truth to power. So for me, that's, that's a real sign. When I hear somebody, oh, we've got to speak truth to power. If they want to, they're not a legitimate prophet. No legitimate prophet wants or chooses to speak truth to power. They feel compelled to, against their will often. That's a sign, that's to me a legitimate sign of a prophet. They don't want it. They don't want it. Martin Luther King, I don't want it that. I just want to be a good dad. I just want to love my kids. I just leave me alone. That's what a prophet's about. But they're not allowed to be left alone. And anybody that wants to go, wow, we need her, I'm leery of that. So, anyway, so now back to the sermon. <laughs> <laughs> So this God concept I'm suggesting deeply influences how we live. And I'm going to share with you an experience that I had that deeply impacted and influenced my life and has for well over 20 years now. It was like 1999, 2000, somewhere in there. I was living in England. I was living in Windsor, England. I was part of uh, a, a network of small churches. Um, Evangelical churches. And as it came to happen, or it was just a very difficult time in my life. Many people that I had trusted and loved hurt me deeply. And I was living in a foreign country, even though two countries separated by the same language, England and the United States. I, it was not my culture. And I felt out of place. And I was deeply wounded and hurt. And as it came to pass that weekend, I was supposed to speak at a conference of missionaries, of people connected with our churches that were trying to do many good things and help people around the world. And I was supposed to be a speaker. And I was so angry and hurt and wounded and felt so alone, I thought, oh God, there's no I have nothing to say. This is going to be a disaster, as it often is when I speak. But, so it was my custom at that time to ride an exercise bike. I used to do that a lot, to, to deal with my pain and hurt and wound, and I would ride like a demon. I would, just for an hour, I would sweat profusely. and so I thought, I've got to say something, and I don't know what to say. So in my own effort to try to reconnect with God, which is so important to me, I remembered reading about an exercise that I decided to do while I'm riding that stationary bike. And the exercise went like this. I remembered this exercise. Imagine it's the last day, it's judgment day, as recorded in the Bible, Revelations, the scary book at the end, chapters four and five. And in Revelations four and five, you get this picture of judgment. God is seated on the throne and behind God, there's this rainbow that's emerald in hue, so a, somehow a greenish rainbow. And there's four living creatures buzzing around that have eyes everywhere in the front of their head and the back of their head under their wings, and they're floating around, hovering. And the four and twenty elders are seated in front of the throne, and there's a sea of glass And it's this, there's lightning and thunder. It's dramatic. I mean, Steven Spielberg could really go to town with this. So that's the picture. And the exercise said, imagine it's Judgment Day, and every human being that's ever lived is assembled before the great throne of God, and one by one, a name is called, and when that name is called, you have to go stand in front of the throne and look God eyeball to eyeball, face to face, And when you look at the divine being, what do you see? That's the exercise. So I'm riding my exercise, this stationary bike, trying to connect. And so I did the exercise. I imagine, all right, it's the last day. All humanity is there. Everybody that's ever lived. There's Moses. There's Mother Teresa. There's Pema Chodron. There is Joe Montana. There is Willie Mays. There is um, everybody that Frank Sinatra is there. Everybody that Richard Nixon Everybody's there. And so finally, my name is called Fred Gruy. And all of humanity parts. And I walk down the aisle and stare at the great throne of God. And I look God face to face into the eye. And what do I see? Well, when I did this exercise, I was in such a wounded place. What I saw was God look away in disappointment. Like, oh. Boy, what a screwball you are. Boy, you messed up. I, I, I thought of all the times I had hurt people with my attempts at humor or to make them feel bad. And I just, And then, as it unfolded, Jesus, who was seated next to God, stood up and came and stood in front of me. And when God glanced back and looked at me through Jesus... God had a huge welcoming smile, like I was okay now. And I I thought to myself, is that what I think of God? That God only loves me because of what Jesus did. That I only have worth and value because of Jesus. And then I thought, well, wait a minute. It was God's idea to send Jesus in the first place. So God must care for me more than, than just that so I thought, okay, okay, I'll, I'll do it again so the second time I did the same exact exercise last day, judgment day, throng of humanity Fred Gruy come down I come down the aisle and the second time when I looked into God's face what I saw God had a Mona Lisa kind of a smile <laughs> it was like <clears throat> well, do I amuse God or do I annoy God I, do, I couldn't tell And it was like a mixed message. And I couldn't tell whether this was a good thing or not a good thing. And then I thought, is this what I really think of God? That I don't know where I stand? That God is cold or hot or sends mixed messages? And I thought, that, that can't be right. So I did it a third time. I did it again. And what happened the third time changed me in a molecular way. So the third time, Sea of Humanity, Fred Gruy come down, I walk down the aisle, look at the face of God. The third time, when I, when I looked into the face of God, I'm riding this exercise bike, I'm so wounded, I'm broken, I'm hurt, I'm lost. And God got up off the throne with tears in God's eyes, tears streaming down God's cheeks. and came up, and hugged me, and embraced me, and held me, and said, I love you, I love you, I love you, I will never let you go. I will never let you go. And it so liberated me on the inside. I realized it didn't matter whether I lived in the United States or England, it didn't matter where, it didn't matter what I did for a job. That God just loves me. And accepts me. Nonsense and all. And it so radically changed my perspective of myself and of the world and life. Like the picture in your bulletin. It changed my perspective of everything. And as a result of that experience, I later became a hospice chaplain and for 17 years worked with dying people, and was with more than 3,000 dying folks, and for every person that would ever allow me the privilege to pray with them, for 17 years, I would pray that prayer from Hebrews 13 and 5, and I said, for God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. For every person I got to pray It has so changed my behavior and how I relate to other human beings. That change in my God concept liberated me in untold ways. And so why do I share that story with you? I look, I'm not trying to convert you to my image of God, I'm not trying to make to convert you to (laughs) Fredism. But I'm just suggesting that whatever it is you think or not about God affects how you see reality, how you live in this world. And so it's worthy to think about, reflect, inspect your God concept. Because if it's not helpful, if it's not conducive to the kind of person you dream to be, Then look for another one. I mean, God concepts are not carved in stone. They change. They're fluid. Over time, they evolve. And so whatever it is you think is, I'm encouraging you at some point this week, think about this. And if it's not helpful, there's resources to look for other ones that might be more helpful. I think, you you know what the word iconoclast means, somebody that shatters images. And I read recently that God is the great iconoclast. Because whatever image or concept or box we try to put God in, God shatters them all the time. John O'Donohue, the great Irish poet, said, you know, it is my prayer that your image of God would be wild and feisty to help you live a vibrant life. And that's my prayer. That whatever concept or not you have would be wild and feisty and invite you to live life large. What do you see? What do you see? What do you see? see? Many years ago, a couple hundred years ago, in the deep south of the United States, when someone attempted to describe their experience of connecting with this divine other we name God, the God of the Bible for them, long before the terms born again and saved and are you committed and all that stuff, long before all that, they would look someone in the eye and they would say, have you been seized by the great affection? Have you been seized by the great affection? I, oh, what a wonderful idea. And so my prayer for all of us this week, like Jeremiah, that our lives would get interrupted and that we would all be seized by the great affection. Amen. Amen. Now go be nice. (laughs)